0: Corinthians fifteen. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, and we'll be reading together verses twelve through nineteen. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant, and holy word of God. Now, if it be preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He didn't raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Let's ask God to help us understand. Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, you know our necessities before we ask and our ignorance in asking, have compassion on our weakness and mercifully give us those things which for our unworthiness we dare not and for our blindness we cannot ask. Through the worthiness of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, we pray, amen. You may be seated. Much to my family's chagrin, most likely, uh, I am one who thoroughly enjoys uh, political talk shows. I'm somewhat of a junkie. Uh, I love listening to the debates. I love it when they get two completely radical people on opposing sides and try to have them argue their policy positions out. I have, however, uh, come more to the conviction recently that there's very little to be learned often in these debates because people are yelling so loud over against each other that you can't really make out too much uh, what people are saying. Whether it's radio or TV, I enjoy it. My probably my favorite host is on TV, Chris Matthews on Hardball. It's not necessarily because I agree with all of his politics. I don't, but he's fascinating. It's entertainment all to itself to watch him interview people, make them squirm, and it's entertaining and informative all of itself to see how he goes after people's ideas and often exposes them to how they are really thinking before they've even grasped what they're thinking that way. One of the most favorite things that I think that he does, which is so important in the show, is often he will listen to what somebody has to say, and then show them the logical implications of what it is that they've just said, and then he'll press them against the wall, and he'll say, do you believe that? Do you want to make news today and tell everyone who's listening that this is what you believe and this is what your policies are about and this is what your party stands for? You see, unfolding and unraveling the logical implications of a position so that people can really see what it is that is being proposed. Now that's precisely what the Apostle Paul does here in 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve and forward. He has listened to, and we don't know how much of the argument or the discussion he has heard, but he's heard enough about this objection to the bodily resurrection, uh, which is sort of spreading throughout Corinth and is also within earshot of the members of the church. And what he does as he has listened to this and he's processed the overall message... He now says to the Corinthians in an attempt to correct their thinking and to inoculate them against false teaching, what he does is he draws out one overarching logical consequence of the position. And the one overarching logical consequence has a series of implications. You see, if this one big idea is true, Paul says, that's bad enough. It it absolutely unravels and uproots and destroys Christianity as you know it. It's bad. It's the worst one. But he says, it's not just that that's the problem though. And then he goes on to unfold four implications which flow from that one implication to show the Corinthians what's underneath the sinister teaching that is being spread among them. So what we want to do this morning is examine that one big logical consequence and then unfold and think through the four implications. So there's your outline, the one big logical consequence. And you can see that very easily here uh, without much difficulty as you look at verses 12 and 13 together. He says, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now you see, the issue that he's dealing with is the bodily resurrection. The false teaching that is being propagated and spread uh, by some in Corinth is that there is no bodily resurrection in the future. Now, who's saying this? Well, it could be any one number of people. We don't know. There's not enough information in the text to really help us figure out who precisely does it say this. It could be the Sadducees, uh, who were a group um, among the Jews who did not believe that there would be a future bodily resurrection of the dead. It was a position that was not wildly popular uh, among Judaism at this time, but at least people were aware of it. It's possible that they were behind this. And it's possible that the way they pitched this particular idea is that they did it using the language of Christianity. It's also possible that the whole denial of a future bodily resurrection uh, might have come from people who were influenced by Greek Platonic thought. And Greek Platonic thinking basically says that the biggest obstacle to you really enjoying your spiritual life is your body. In fact, Plato uh, saw that there was an analogy basically between being captivated in a jail and having your soul being captivated in your body. And so there was, in some of Greek thinking, this idea that the best way to enjoy true spirituality was to rise above the material, to rise above the body, to rise above the material world. Now, I do think that whoever is presenting these false ideas is probably at least saying that that the truest form of spirituality is to get wet, to get rid of, and to get away from the body. And so if you want to enjoy God forever and ever in eternity, the best way to do that is to not have a bodily resurrection. Now, Paul takes on that thinking and he says, well, here is the overarching logical consequence that you need to draw from that idea. Verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. He says here is the fundamental problem with your system of belief or this system of belief that preaches that there is no future bodily resurrection. He says you cannot separate the bodily resurrection of Christ from the bodily resurrection of all mankind at the end of the age. It's an impossibility. There is an inseparable connection between Christ historically, physically, materially rising from the dead and the general resurrection of all, but especially believers in a bodily form at the end of the age. And Paul attacks this from a series of different angles. In verse 15, he brings it up again. He says, Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we've testified against God that He raised Christ from the dead, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. You have him dealing with it again. Verse 16, he says, If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. You see, there's a lot of repetition in this passage. He's just approaching it from different angles, but he's showing there is a necessary connection between these two things. It's fascinating even the very form of argument that he uses underscores uh, the logical consistency of these things. You'll notice that he uses an if-then clause. For instance, verse 13, he says, "...if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised." You see, the very form of the argument requires the conclusion. Paul is saying, uh, if it is true that there is no bodily resurrection, and you assume it just for the sake of argument, he says that it logically demands the position that Christ himself did not rise bodily from the dead, You can't have one idea without logically having the other. That's a very fascinating way to attack the problem. Because it's very clear that there was uh, no one in the Corinthian church numbered among the Christians who wanted to deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And see so what he's done here is he's drawn out the premise. He's drawn out the assumptions behind this idea that there is no future bodily resurrection. He said if you can buy that, you must also agree to the other completely unacceptable idea that Christ did not rise from the dead bodily. But you could also use that very form of argument and reverse its terms and draw it inside out. And that's basically what Paul is also doing here. If you switch the second clause with the first, and you say, if Christ did rise from the dead bodily, then it's logically necessary that there will be a future bodily resurrection from the dead. That's the, the comfort and the assurance that Paul is operating with here. He's operating with facts. We already looked at this as we looked at the first uh, several verses of this particular chapter. We noticed that Paul went out of his way to underscore the fact, the historical fact of the resurrection. He gave us this very emphatic and bold six-fold testimony of the bodily resurrection of Christ. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to twelve. He appeared to more than five hundred at once. He appeared to James. He appeared to all the apostles. He appeared, last of all, to Paul. There's no doubt in Paul's thinking that Christ rose from the dead. And if Christ did really rise from the dead bodily, then there must be a bodily resurrection of all at the end of the age. That's the truth he's working with. But you see what he's done here is he's challenging the Corinthians to think through the implications of this terrible, pernicious, soul-destroying, church-killing error that there's no bodily resurrection. And what he does here is he takes these Corinthians by the hand and he says, if it's true, if it is true that dead men don't rise, therefore Jesus didn't rise from the dead bodily, That's enough to destroy your faith right there. But he says, if that's true, this series of implications is also logically true. You can see the connection in verse 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then, that little particle, then, is a signal that Paul is saying, whatever follows is logically required. It's logically required that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, preaching is vain, faith is vain. And then he follows up on that 18 and 19, that those who have fallen asleep in Jesus are eternally destroyed. And then verse 19, it's also logically true that Christians are the most pitiful people on this earth. So there's your implications, and they all flow from this position that eh, if there's no bodily resurrection of the dead then Christ didn't rise from the dead. And if Christ didn't rise from the dead, Christianity is just all smoke and mirrors. That's what we have to take on here this morning in this passage. So the one large overarching consequence of the theological error that's circulating in Corinth is, if dead people don't rise, Christ didn't rise from the dead. And if that's true... And logically, these things are as well. Now, I've just sort of emphasized these to the point of redundancy as if I worked at the Department of Redundancy Department. But you have to understand this because that's the heart of the passage. Now let's unravel these implications. The very first thing that he says in terms of the implication that flows from uh, this premise that Christ didn't rise from the dead, he says is our preaching is in vain. Now, it's fascinating. that in the original, vain is the, uh, the emphatic word. It's not preaching that's emphatic. It's vanity that's emphatic. He says, vanity, preaching is. And that word vanity has been translated all different kinds of ways. You're probably familiar with that as being the dominant word in the book of Ecclesiastes. But the vanity is basically this. There's nothing behind it. It's like you're swinging at shadows. There's no substance there. There's no substance. That's basic what he's saying when he says our preaching is vain. It's a substance-less preaching. There's no true content to it. It's void of any basis. And because there's no content to it, there's no basis to it, there's no power in it, and there's no authority in it. Now, imagine that. Imagine that idea as you think of the Apostles and all of the labor and effort and energy that they put into preaching at the risk of their own life. Imagine them spending their entire adult years after coming to Jesus Christ up to the point of death living for something and preaching something that they knew was complete falsehood. It's illogical. John was martyred for his faith. Rather, James was martyred for his faith. James, the brother of John. Uh, Peter was continually harassed and imprisoned. Paul, repeatedly imprisoned and beaten and stoned. As you listen to the accounts of the ancient church tradition, it seems that every single one of the Christ hand-picked apostles, including Paul, were martyred for their faith. Every one of them except for John. Just listen to how Paul describes his own suffering in his pursuit of preaching this message. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, a passage you're probably well familiar with, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship, in sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, and often without food, in cold and exposure. And then apart from those things, he says... I still have to be a pastor. Who would do such a thing? Who would spend their entire life proclaiming something they knew to be factually untrue? To subject themselves to such torment and persecution and poverty and difficulty and trial. To do such a thing is utterly delusional. Paul says, if our preaching, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain. He unfolds on that a little bit more, however, in verse 15. He says, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Now, if you think about the apostolic preaching, one thing that stands out very clearly is the repetition of this theme that God raised up Christ from the dead. i studying this out in the book of Acts and the snippets of sermon material that are recorded for us. Peter, the very first sermon, Pentecost, accents, God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death. Acts chapter 3, verse 15 He says to the Jews, you put to death the Prince of Life, the one whom God raised from the dead. A fact to which we are witnesses. Acts chapter 4, speaking to the religious authorities. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. The next time you find Peter preaching is in Acts chapter 10. And again, when does he act sending and proclaiming that God raised up Christ on the third day? It's not just Peter. If you look at Paul's sermons, it's full of this testimony. If you go to 1 John chapter 1, written by the Apostle John at the latter end of his life in apostolic ministry, at the very outset of this book, he says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He was manifested, we have seen, and testified, and proclaimed. All those verbs are powerful in the original because they suggest this very tangible, material, physical, visible encounter with the risen Christ. All of the apostolic preaching is shot through with this thematic proclamation of the fact of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And yet the Apostle Paul says, our preaching is vain because if we're sitting around preaching this and making the accent and the theme and the dominant idea of our proclamation, what we're doing is if it's not true, is we are false witnesses of God. That's a very important phrase. We are found out to be. We are exposed to be fraudulent. We are exposed to be shams. But he also says, we are found out to be false witnesses of God. And the sense of that construction is that God has appointed them. He has commissioned them. And He has sent them. And He has placed a message in their mouth. And instead of them proclaiming the message that God gave them, they've decided to make up their own. And then it gets worse than that, because the Apostle Paul says, it's not just that they are false witnesses, it's not just that they have substituted their own delusional message, it says they've done something worse. And I love the translation of the New American Standard here in the middle of verse 15 because it gets it right. It says, We have testified against God. It's not just they've substituted their own message, they've lied about God. They have accused God of doing something. That's what Paul's saying. They accused God of doing something he didn't do. That just to say that makes you want to put your hand over your mouth. But here's what Paul says was the false accusation. They accused God of doing something he didn't do, and the thing that he supposedly didn't do on this construction is raise Christ from the dead. He says we are false witnesses. We have accused God of doing things he hasn't done. We have lied. We've made false accusations. And our preaching is vain." Well, people of God, we know that's not true. He's, again, drawing out the logical implications of this position. If dead bodies don't rise, that means Christ didn't rise. And if Christ didn't rise, the first implication, Paul says, is preaching is vain, and we are liars, and we have willfully and knowingly distorted the truth, and we have made false accusations against God. It's fascinating how Paul puts this. It's bold ground to stake out. You see, it's very bold ground. Because he is basically saying that uh, if the facts are not the substance of his preaching then preaching should be rejected. If facts are not the substance or the content of his preaching, then his preaching should be rejected and ignored. Now imagine that. Imagine if you read the entire New Testament, and you read it with the understanding that every single reference to Jesus Christ and His life and His work and His redemptive acts and His resurrection were all untrue. And you could just take out a pair of scissors and cut all of those pink passages out of your Bible and all of the apostolic proclamation and all of the elaboration that is found in the apostolic writings. Just cut it all out. What would you have left? You'd have left something that's not worth reading. I remember uh, years and years and years ago, uh, when I was in college, uh, a comment made by uh, one of my professors, a teacher of Greco-Roman history, was mocking Christianity openly. It was fine to do that. It's secular school, so they can do whatever they want. Um, Was laughing at the idea of why anybody would read the New Testament. He said, the Greek is clumsy and inarticulate is written by a bunch of fishermen, he said. Which is true. It's written by a bunch of uneducated people who at best can string together sentences like Dr. Seuss. And he said, you got to take all that stuff out of there about Jesus because none of that happened. So he said, what do you have left? You have a bunch of morals. And he said, you can find that almost anywhere you want to in the ancient writings. Now that's what Christianity is if the Apostle Paul's implications are correct. If Christ didn't rise, their teaching is vain, it's a lie, it's a false accusation, it's false testimony, it's not true. At the end of the day, you could just cut out all that stuff about Jesus, and it's just a bunch of morals. It's just self-help, and you can buy that book at Borders. And it would probably be a lot more interesting. The first implication that Paul draws out here is if it's true, it's really bad. Apostolic preaching is vain. The second thing that he says is faith is vain. Look at verse 14. He says, your faith also is vain. Same word. Empty. Contentless. Factless. Truthless. Powerless. Now you think about that. Think about faith as you hear that phrase and as then you compare it to how the Scriptures in the New Testament describe faith. John 3.16, probably the easiest passage to go to. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Acts 16.31, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are you saved through faith. Those are just a few. All across the New Testament, you have this central proclamation of faith and its connection to salvation. It's the key. It's the means. It's all over the New Testament. And what the Apostle Paul says is you could also take out the scissors and cut out all those passages too. Because faith doesn't justify. Faith doesn't save. Faith doesn't lead to peace with God. Faith isn't the controlling impulse of my life. Because it's vain. It's empty. It offers nothing. Well, he clarifies why he says that in verse 17. You see that repetition, if Christ has not been raised, basically saying, I alluded to it in verse 14. Now by repeating that phrase from verse 14, and it's followed by, your faith is worthless, same thing that you have in verse 14. He's saying, now I'm going to elaborate on what I meant by that. And uh, what he says I meant by that is, you are still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised from the dead bodily, the apostle says, you are still in your sins. Now that's fascinating how he puts it there because sin is the big problem that we all have. You know, you, you can tell me all day long about how to be a good person, you can describe it to a T. You cannot just simply state the moral principles, but then you could actually show all of the individual sequential steps that I must take in order to be a good person. But the fact is, I'll never be good because I'm sinful. That is the fundamental problem which drives the New Testament proclamation of the Gospels is that everybody is sinful and so none of us get out of the boat, which is the real problem. Sid. And he says, if Christ has not been raised bodily, you're still in your sins. You say, well, what's the connection between these two things? Well, Paul draws it out in another passage. You don't have to turn there, but it's Romans 4.25, which says that Christ was delivered because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. See, that gets us started on thinking about this connection between the bodily resurrection... And this problem of sin. Because the Apostle Paul says in Romans 4.25, Christ was raised because of our justification. You could translate that. He was raised in order to affect our justification. Christ was raised to affect your sins. He was raised to confer pardon and righteousness upon you. The Heidelberg Catechism, looking at that particular verse, uh, interprets it like this. Question 45 says, by his resurrection, he has overcome death that he might make us partakers of the righteousness which he purchased for us by his death. You see why faith is empty if Christ didn't rise bodily from the dead? Well, first of all, it's empty because it says if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then his sacrifice on the cross was worthless. It secured nothing. That's what it says. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if you don't have a resurrection and you just have a cross, you don't have salvation. You don't have pardon for your sins. So there's no substance for faith to cling to. But then, Paul says, if He didn't rise bodily from the dead, you don't have somebody in heaven conferring faith, which clings to the righteousness it's worse than grasping at shadows. So there's nothing there. See, faith doesn't save because it's some mystical bond or connection which somehow irrationally connects us to God. That's the gobbledygook spirituality talk which is all over uh, the airwaves. Anybody can believe that. And to believe that is to believe Nothing. We all go to some spirit world in the sky. Somehow we get next to God. Who knows how? Nobody knows how. You just say it and it makes you feel better, I guess. I don't know. Paul says, no, it's a big waste of time. Faith is about clinging to something. Faith is about clinging to substance. Faith is about clinging to Christ. If Christ isn't there in His righteousness, in His righteous death, and His victorious resurrection, there's nothing to hold on to. And there's no one to give you faith to hang on to it anyway. You see, he says, if Christ didn't rise from the dead bodily, your faith is vain. You are still in your sins. That's a terrible thing to contemplate. Because what Paul doesn't say is you're off the hook for your sins. He doesn't say, "Well, God's not angry." All that has to be assumed here. He's basically to say you're still in your sins. You're still in the predicament that you were, and there's no, there's no way out. The third implication is found now in verse 18. Then also. See, he's just ticking them off one by one. Then also, then also, not only is preaching useless, not only is faith useless, but he says, all those who did die with this hope have eternally perished. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That's verse 18 It's a very frightening uh, implication because basically what Paul just did with that he said if this is true it just guts hope right out of the Christian faith. It just rips it right out. Now you think about that for a second. What other consolation do you have? What other consolation do you have? You ever been in the room somebody somebody's dying? You want to talk about the Dodgers? You could talk about how the Lakers just won the championship? You want to talk politics? Who could care less about any of that stuff if you're dying? What difference does it make that Kobe Bryant's the best basketball player in the NBA? Who cares if LeBron went to the Heat? They're dead. They're going, to, go to, they're, they're going to, to their death. They're going to eternally perish. What do you have to offer? Have you ever tried that before? There's no more taking two more aspirin and call the doctor in the morning. It's over. What are you going to offer? You know, this was a huge problem in the time of the Greeks. Because you, you, know, you can criticize the Greeks for a lot of things. One thing the Greeks were honest about is that death is terrible. That's what they believed. They literally talked about death being terrible. And we're not that way today. We play video games and kill people and they come back to life. We watch movies and, uh, you know... A husband or a wife dies or a kid dies and then magically at the end of the movie they they appear with a, a golden halo around them and it's all better at the end our age refuses to confront the issue of death it just refuses to it pretends it's not there but the greeks didn't do that and if you listen to the greeks talk about death and the kind of consolation they had at death it's frightening There's a sympathy card that has been uncovered from uh, the Apostle Paul's day. It's the consolation of one pagan unbeliever to another. Listen. The apostles, or rather, Irene says to Tanaforus and Philo, Good comfort, I'm sorry, and I weep over the departed one as I wept for Didymus. Against such things one can do nothing. Against such things one can do nothing. Now listen to the punchline of the sympathy card. Therefore comfort one another. There is no attempt here at consolation. Zero. How abstract, how impersonal, how mechanical, how hopeless. Against such things one can do nothing but comfort one another. It's chilly. There's no sympathy in it. That's not the hope that the apostles proclaimed. You see, one reason why Christianity... uh, electrified the Greeks who heard it is because it told them that there was a way around the terrible plight of death when the apostles preached a resurrected a bodily resurrected savior he was electrifying to people who were in tyrannized in fear over death the apostle paul puts it this way he puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4.14. First of all, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. But then he goes on to say to those who did rise, and I didn't print it in my notes, Here's what he said. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. You see the consolation. It's the same kind of an argument that he makes here in 1 Corinthians 15. If we believe Jesus died and rose again, then there's a solid, logical, necessary conclusion that everyone who died in Him, God will bring again. That is the apostolic proclamation. That was the hope that the apostles had to bring to their world. If we believe Jesus died and rose again, we know God will bring those who have fallen asleep in Jesus with Him when Jesus returns. Well, there's a fourth implication. There is a fourth implication here. And it's in verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most pitied. It's kind of fascinating to watch uh, the Christian commentators jump through hoops uh, to sugarcoat this and to try to make Paul say something they didn't say or try to take the rough edges off of Paul or to tone down Paul Uh, Because they want to so much say, Oh, but there's all kinds of wonderful things about Christianity. Uh, No, Paul says, very grimly, realistically, if our hope in Christ is simply about being like Jesus, but not being saved eternally by Jesus, he said, you can just throw this Christianity stuff down the drain. He said, we are the most miserable We're worse off, he says, than all the false religions in the world. We are the most miserable. I kind of get a feeling from that that Paul did a bristle from all the trials we read about in Second Corinthians 11. The beatings, the imprisonments, the cold, the hunger, uh, the constant sufferings. He didn't enjoy it. He did it because he was commissioned by Jesus Christ who rose from the dead to proclaim the Gospel. He says that didn't happen. Paul even says here, being a Christian is nothing but misery. Think about it. Why live a faith that makes you scorned and ridiculed of the world around you? Why live your life turning the other cheek when people abuse you? Why live your life praying for those who persecute you? Why live your life blessing those who are causing trouble in your life? Why live this Christian life, which Jesus describes Himself as bearing a cross, if Jesus doesn't say? Eternally, If Jesus is merely a good example of how to live in this world, but there's no eternal salvation, why live this faith? You know, Paul basically just here says that Christianity is a complete waste of time if Christ did not rise bodily from the dead. There's no hope. There's no saving power. There's no comfort in it. You know, when you think about that, you stand and you marvel at how it is that such vast swaths of Christianity, known as liberal Christianity, even bother to show up to church on Sunday morning. Proclaiming a faith of that fits flexibly with the latest philosophies of reality, and faith that is so thoroughly politically correct that there is no practice or system of ethics that it can't somehow figure out how to accommodate, except the Biblical one all the while believing Jesus isn't the Son of God, Jesus never rose from the dead, and all this stuff about salvation through a blood atonement is just is just shocking to the sensitivities and shouldn't even be spoken about. Paul says if, if that's what you believe, and sadly, vast, vast portions of Christianity today thinks that's all there is to it. Somehow, some way, they find some comfort in vaguely being like Jesus. And Paul says, you're the most miserable person in the world. Those are the very dark, distressing, discomforting implications of the Christian message if the resurrection isn't true. So, I think one thing that's really good about all this is to to check ourselves. What is it that we believe? What is it that we believe? You couldn't find, in a sense, a more confrontational passage, I think, than this. Paul says, you can dress up and play Christian all you want, but it's a waste of time, for now and forever, if Christ didn't rise from the dead. That's pretty cynical, it's pretty dark. It's pretty discomforting. The only way that there's real salvation is to believe that Jesus did rise from the dead bodily and that Jesus really is in heaven praying for you, interceding for you, and conferring faith upon you and sustaining you and leading you through all of your trials unto death so that you can enter into the joy of the Lord. That's... that's the hope and the joy of the Christian message. Not wanting to leave us in uh, despair this morning as we think about these implications. Notice, and, and we'll expound this next time, but just notice how in verse 20, Paul turns on a dime and causes us all to experience tremendous relief. But now, he says, but now, Christ has been raised from the dead. Those words are so powerful in the original. Noony day, but now. And you can come back to all those implications. There's no bodily resurrection. Apostolic preaching is empty. Faith is vain. Hope is lost. And Christianity is miserable. And you can turn all of those inside out. And here's what Paul is saying. But now, because of the bodily resurrection of Christ, there is a resurrection of the body. But now, because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, apostolic preaching is fruitful. But now, because of the bodily resurrection of Christ, faith is the instrument of justification. But now, because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, deceased believers are in Christ, and we will see them again. But now, because of the bodily resurrection of Christ, Christianity is the only faith that's real, makes life meaningful, and offers any sustained joy in the face of all of life's difficulties and trials. And all those things are true because what the apostles witnessed and testified to were facts. They didn't misrepresent God. They didn't lie. They didn't accuse Him of doing something that He didn't do. He really did raise Jesus up from the dead. And because of that, The dead will rise, and believers will enjoy bodily eternal life with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for gospel facts. We thank you even for demonstrations of gospel logic.